From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jenny Doring. We'll celebrate Thanksgiving with a feast starring turkey, stuffing, and some Native American traditions like the Three Sisters. As the corn grows, it provides a stock for the beans to trellis up to and give them root so they can actually continue to grow. And then from there, the beans would provide nitrogen for the soil, for the squash, and for the corn. So they would back each other up like a family would. Also reckoning with the painful aftermath of the pilgrims and white settlement. Use the holiday as a way to think about the Native peoples where families are living, right? So if a family's having Thanksgiving, it's an opportunity to ask those questions around, well, whose land was this originally? Who are the Native peoples that live or lived in this land? We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is a special Thanksgiving edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanksgiving marks the beginning of the holiday season, so families and friends are gathering around the feast to share staples as well as some less common traditions. And we've gathered some of the Living on Earth folks together to get a taste of those recipes. And with me now, of course, is Jenny Doring. Hi, Steve. We've got some familiar voices and some behind-the-scenes folks from our crew as well. And uh, Ainsley O'Neill's got us covered with a starter course. Is that right? Yeah, I wanted to share my mother's pumpkin soup recipe by way of Martha Stewart. You just cut up, you know, two to three cups of pumpkin, simmer it with onion, garlic, salt, pepper, thyme in either chicken or veggie broth. When that's all nice and tender, you puree the mixture. You got to be careful there because it's really hot. So be gentle with it. You return the pureed soup to the pot and then you add some heavy whipping cream, warm it first so it doesn't curdle. And you serve it. And the Martha Stewart version suggests using a little mini pumpkin to serve it in. But we use mugs so that the family can walk around and mix and mingle before we sit down to the main course. How cute. And if anyone's listening to us wondering that they didn't scribble down this recipe fast enough, it can all be found on the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. So hey, what's next, Jenny? Well, I think we've got Naomi Ehrenberg here, and she picks the music every week. So Naomi, you got some cranberries for us? I've got the reminiscence. I'm from a cranberry-growing family. Both my father and grandfather were cranberry growers. And so that's the special part of Thanksgiving for me. You can use them, I think, in almost anything. I've got pie in front of me. And of course, there's the sauce. I make it pure with just cranberries. You don't need to add water in the pot but you can, a splash of home-squeezed orange juice, a little bit of sugar, always cut back on the sugar that any recipe has, because you can always add it, but you can't take it out. And so just simmer that away until the cranberries are all popping in the pan, and be sure to let it cool thoroughly and sit for a day or more. And people will rave about your cranberry sauce. And I think that adds a bright, nice color to the table, whether it's Thanksgiving or any other holiday. Yeah. Oh, man, that that cranberry sauce, when it's bubbling away and making those popping sounds, it smells incredible, too. Yeah, that's great. And I do a version of that. Cranberries, just a little bit of water in the cranberries and maple syrup, where I am in New Hampshire, um, in, instead of conventional sugar, and it tastes delicious. And you tap those trees yourself, right, Steve? Well, we have historically. My mom has. I haven't recently been tapping them, but our neighbors do, and it is delicious. Also, just when it comes to the stuffing, I also put cranberries in the stuffing that I make. I have to confess that not everybody likes that in my family. So I make two versions of stuffing with the cranberries and then well, those without so speaking of stuffing, I think our technical director, Jacob Rigo, who is usually not heard, but he does all the work behind the scenes on this broadcast and podcast, I think he wanted to tell us about stuffing as well. What you got, Jake? Yeah, a recipe my family enjoys every year is Portuguese stuffing. It's a secret family recipe, but its key ingredient is a Portuguese sausage called chorizo. 
We never seem to have any leftovers, though, because it's a family favorite. Ooh, tasty. Mm, mm, that's so good. I've had food from where your family is from around New Bedford, Massachusetts. They put Charisse in almost everything, and it makes it delicious. <laughs> All right, let's turn now to our director of advancement and program strategy, Mark Kausch, who's famous for playing the double bass in symphony orchestras. But you have something else that's double for us today, Mark, I think. Yes, double in a manner of speaking, correct. At the front end of the pandemic, I reached out to my dad to say, hey, we're going to be trapped here in Minnesota, just the two of us, my wife and I. Can we have your twice-baked potato recipe? He said, sure. And it actually was one that he'd made up himself. It wasn't something that he'd found in a recipe book. And the more we got talking about it, the more it dawned on me that basically twice-baked potatoes are kind of like making pizza or making nachos. You can kind of do whatever you want. Bake the potatoes, carve out the potatoes, keep the potato skins as your bowls for later on. And then his recipe mashes in a bunch of butter, some scallions, bacon bits, with apologies to the vegans and vegetarians out there, but those are optional. And then you put it all back into the potato skins and bake it for another 15, 20 minutes. And I thought, well, this doesn't sound so hard. I can totally do this. And I was absolutely stunned at how complicated it turned out to be. And sadly, how I just couldn't quite do quite as well as dad did with his every year recipe. I'm off the hook now because he's back at it. And I'm looking forward to his version and hoping that someday I'll do as well as he does. So You'll have to shadow him in the kitchen this time around. There we go. Good thought. Dad knows best. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like twice-baked potatoes would be enough for a whole meal, really. That could be the main entree. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Steve. And it's um, it's always fascinating to me how, more often than not, it's the side dishes that are the most fun at Thanksgiving, for sure. And some of the most filling. Well, I hope you still have some room in your stomachs because our Living on Earth contributor who looks beyond the headlines for us each week is here, too. Peter Dykstra, what are you salivating over this Thanksgiving? Well, I'm not salivating. I'm still chewing on uh, all of the prior recipes that we've heard. But I come from a long line of meat-eating, environmentally hypocritical relatives. My contribution usually is just good old mac and cheese, but with bacon in it. It's simple elbow mac. I tried it one year with gluten-free elbow mac, not realizing that gluten-free elbow macaroni turns basically into mashed potatoes when you try and use it. Cheddar cheese, because you don't want the four cheese stuff, because cheddar cheese will outtaste just about anything. And we top it off with a lot of crumbled bacon. And it's usually the first thing to disappear at our table full of carnivores with occasionally environmentally bankrupt and hypocritical means at the dinner table. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, Jenny, what about you? All right. Well, I hope you still have room because I love green bean casserole. And I have to say, I used to hate the stuff that came from a can. You know, for me, it was these green beans that were cooked until death. So they were like gray. And then that can of mushroom soup from a can. Ugh. But now I'm completely obsessed with making it from scratch. And Alton Brown has an amazing recipe where in a big cast iron pan, uh, you put all this stuff together and you first do blanch green beans, then you saute mushrooms into a luscious and delicious roux. And then you top that all with crispy thin sliced onions. And it is just delicious. How does it sound to you, Peter? It sounds like something I can't eat with all due respect. I'm allergic to all manner of beans, green beans, pinto beans, lima beans, string beans. So um, if we eat any of those things in a restaurant, I'll have to order myself an ambulance. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, dear. Well, Steve, we're hearing some to-die-for Thanksgiving recipes from the Living on Earth crew, but we haven't even gotten to the turkey yet. All right. You know... Only the strictest vegans and vegetarians omit the turkey at Thanksgiving. It's that one time of year where maybe people make the exception. And um, 
a succulent, delicious turkey with the right stuffing is amazing. And I learned from my mother-in-law that you can cook a turkey at a very low temperature, just a little over 200 degrees, overnight to keep it really juicy and not have the top of it dry out. And, of course, then you put in that stuffing with uh, the cranberries, and it's, uh, it's amazing. As a youngster, uh, where we lived in New Hampshire, the neighbor would uh, grow turkeys. And so we would go by, select the live turkey that we wanted, and then it would show up in our kitchen all fully dressed. And it took me a little while as a kid to make the connection. And when I did, I was kind of sad. But, you know, if you're going to eat meat, you got to take responsibility for the process. Okay, well, what do you say, Jenny? You ready for dessert? I'm ready. I mean, I might be bursting after dessert, but <laughs> let's try. Okay. Kicking us off with dessert, I think we've got L. Wilson, one of the newest additions to the Living on Earth crew and a producer here. What have you got, L? Yeah, in my family, we use the leftover pie crust to make cinnamon scraps. All you do is roll the crust into a sheet, cover it with melted butter, and then sprinkle it with cinnamon and sugar. You roll it up, cut it into pieces, and throw it in the oven. They come out looking like mini cinnamon rolls. Mmm. Oh, yeah, that sounds really tasty. I'll have to try that. Now... Sophia Pandelitas, another one of our producers, I think you have a related dessert in your family repertoire. Nespa? Yeah, that's funny, Elle. My family does almost the same thing. We roll out the leftover pie dough and sprinkle it with cinnamon sugar, too. But then instead of making it into cinnamon rolls, we actually cut it out in fun shapes like cookies. We're talking leaves or pumpkins. And then we use those little shapes to decorate our pies. So it's fun and tasty. Cute. I love that. Yeah, that gets to play with the nice thing about this feast part of the holiday and getting together with folks is being together, cooking and making things. It's not just a meal. It's a gathering. Yeah, and it's an artistic process, too. All right, so we've got all this leftover pie crust. What are some of our favorite pies to make out of that pie crust? Mmm, don't get my mouth watering, please. I'll drip on a microphone. <laughs> For me, growing up as uh, the daughter and granddaughter of cranberry growers, you can make a delicious open-faced pie, please, because it glistens even the next day. When you first take it out of the oven, invite everyone to circle around and look at this glistening creation. And then the next day, the color settles down. It stays really shiny. It's almost a stained glass window there. Ooh, beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Too pretty to eat? Nah. It disappears. <laughs> Maybe a la mode, perhaps? Huh? Oh. A little bit of vanilla ice cream? Yes. Absolutely. It's my favorite way to eat apple pie. Any kind of pie. <laughs> well, thank you, Naomi. And by the way, speaking of pie, I should mention my grandmother's pumpkin pie, which was part of a very frugal Depression-era way of thinking if there are going to be pumpkins for decorating um, they then need to be recycled into the pies that are going to happen at the holiday season. And Grandma had a nice garden, probably it was a victory garden for World War II at our house, and she grew her own pumpkins. But I guess not all pumpkins are made equal for this sort of thing. Correct. There is one variety that you often can find just in a normal run-of-the-mill grocery store called sugar pumpkins that are grown to be used in a pie or in cooking. Probably explains why later in life, when I tried to make pumpkin pie with ordinary pumpkins, they were kind of stringy and watery. Of course, <laughs> you add enough sugar or you got a pie, but now I know what grandma's secret was. So I think we're just about wrapped up here, but we have one more sweet thing to finish this out. Jacob, I think you've got something to offer. Yeah, dessert that is required for our family's Thanksgiving is a homemade chocolate fudge. You can find the recipe on the back of a jar of marshmallow fluff. It's a delicious mix of sugar, chocolate, fluff, butter, vanilla, and walnuts. Mm -mm. Ooh. My family, we also always have a chocolate course. Now, we don't make it from scratch, but some chocolates, some clementines, some eggnog is the perfect way to wrap it up. 
Ooh, and maybe a taste of rum for some people. Yeah, it depends what kind of eggnog you're drinking. <laughs> well, Jenny, I guess that's it. So we better get on with the cooking, right? Because this is not a quick meal to whip together. Yeah, I think this might take a few days to create everything. All this sounds like a recipe for a food coma, for me at least. <laughs> there you go. And if you've been listening to us and you're thinking, well, what about just go to our website and you can see all these recipes there. And if you have any luck, write to us about what works well in your kitchen. Happy, Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Coming up, we'll decolonize our Thanksgiving tables with Three Sisters Stew and the help of a Native American retelling for kids of the story of the first Thanksgiving. That's just ahead. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. We wanted to tell you about another great podcast from our friends at MIT. You may not be a climate scientist, but you do want to know what's happening to our planet and what we can do about it. That's why MIT created the podcast Today I Learned Climate. In bite-sized 15-minute episodes, they walk you through the science, technologies, and policies behind climate change with real scientists and experts who can answer your burning climate questions without the jargon. Look for TIL Climate on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're one of Living on Earth's listener supporters, or if you've been considering a donation to LOE, this message is for you. As a nonprofit news organization, listener support is vital to LOE's weekly effort to bring you up-to-date environmental news and information. Your gift to LOE makes a difference and makes our work possible. So thank you. We're back with the Living on Earth Thanksgiving special. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Well, if you want a vegan or vegetarian option for Thanksgiving or would like something beyond all the turkey, mashed potatoes, and stuffing, then we've got you covered. Three Sisters Stew is a Native American dish inspired by the three sisters of corn, squash, and beans, traditionally grown together. Joining us now is Chef Stephen Looney of the Iampa Cafe at the Chickasaw Cultural Center in Sulphur, Oklahoma. Chef Stephen, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having me, Stephen. It's wonderful being here. So... When I was a kid, I went to the farm and wilderness camps where they taught us to farm by mounding up the earth and putting corn seeds in and then putting bean seeds and squash seeds and have them all grow together. And we were told this was a Native American traditional way to grow food. And they called it something like the Three Sisters. So how did these three crops come to be planted together, uh, Chef Stephen? So traditionally, Three Sisters is a symbiotic planting system. So what would happen is as the corn grows, it provides a stock for the beans to trellis up to and give them root so they can actually continue to grow. And then from there, the beans would provide nitrogen for the soil, for the squash, and for the corn. So each plant helped the other plant grow and provided a nutrient that the other plant would have as a deficiency in the soil. So they would back each other up like a family would. So it's getting to be colder now, and I'm thinking it might be fun to maybe have you tell me about a stew I could make. Absolutely. So one of the most amazing things about the Three Sisters is the corn. We have something called the shofa. The shofa is a white pearl hominy that's been dried. So with that, I like to take the shofa, uh, slow cook it for about 16 hours with pork, usually pork butt, and then usually within the last hour and a half of the cooking process, I'll add black beans and generally yellow squash, but I really like to add butternut squash to it because it holds up a lot better. So you have this really intense corn flavor balanced with the the fattiness and the, the saltiness of the pork, and then you have the sweetness of the butternut squash in there, and then you get these nice little hits of earthiness from the beans, and it's a very complex and depth of a dish for, you know, something that's just, you know, corns, beets, and squash. Okay, Chef Stephen, what about a simple vegan stew with the Three Sisters? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You could take all those exact same things and just instead of using pork, you could add spinach to it, you could add kale to it. If you were apt enough, you could add wild greens such as poke to there um, or lamb's tongue. Um, those are all things that could be forged in Oklahoma or in the in the homelands that the tribe absolutely would have used and would have ate and consumed. 
So, Chef Stephen, let me ask you, what's a simple recipe, starting with corn kernels? Say something vegetarian. So you can have a corn totosh, which is a type of corn soup. Um, and you could just take fresh corn or canned corn if you like. If it's canned, you should strain it and remove all the excess water. And you could just simply saute that up in a stock pot with some onions and garlic. Add some vegetable base to it or some plain water. And then just reduce the heat. And then after it starts to simmer, you could add onions and carrots. You could add peppers and onions, uh, potatoes. And then once that cooks for a couple hours on low, remove about half of it and then puree that. And so it becomes its own cream. This way you don't even have to add cream to the soup. The vegetables itself has become its own sauce, basically. Mm, so good. Of course, originally these three foods were cultivated together, but nowadays most people would find them in the produce section of a grocery store. What advice would you have for anyone who would like to adapt traditional recipes uh, for today's kitchen? You know, it's funny. Growing up, you know, I wasn't really connected to my Chickasaw heritage as much as I am now. So to me, it's immensely surprising on how many foods are actually native foods. So all of our history is oral. So it's not like with French history, I can go get a cookbook from the 1500s and I can know, you know, what King Louis the 15th had or what Marie Antoinette ate. Unfortunately, my people, we shared things orally. So a lot of it is just purely imagination based. Um, if you were really wanting to truly try foods that the tribe would have had, you know, you maybe not use obviously processed foods, you know, don't use you know, all sorts of um, extracted oils like olive oil, palm seed oil, stuff like that. If you can use lard, you know, if you have access to that, you can use that. But a lot, you know, a lot of the foods would be considered what someone would say is humble, right? They didn't have necessarily special knives or special cooking equipment. You know, they smoked things, they boiled things, they dried things, they cured things like that. So, you know, a lot of what they ate is, well, some, well, some would say rustic, you know, some would say humble, some would say simple, but that's the type of food that my people ate. Stephen Looney is chef at the Iampa Cafe at the Chickasaw Cultural Center. They're in Sulphur, Oklahoma. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm going to try some of these in my own kitchen. Well, I appreciate your time, Stephen. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. I love your garden this time of year, said Maple. Me too. What shall we pick for lunch? Nakumas asked. How about crab apples? Maple suggested. No, choke cherries, Quill shouted. Those are both good medicine, Nakumas said. How about some weachumen as well? Yes, Maple replied. She's such a good big sister to beans and squash. The three sisters, they grow together, Quill added. You're right, they feed people all over Turtle Island, Nakumas said. And they have many stories to tell. Can you tell us a story? Quill asked. How about the time Weachaman asked our Wampanoag ancestors to help the pilgrims? Nakumis replied. The first Thanksgiving? Maple asked. Some people call it that, Nakumis said. We call it Kipunamuk, the time of harvest. Here's what really happened. Those are the opening lines of Kipunamuk, Weachaman's Thanksgiving story. Weachaman, or corn, is the protagonist in this tale. It's for young readers, so the violence white Europeans brought against Native Americans soon after the time of the pilgrims isn't directly in the story. But it does reference the Day of Mourning, which is what some Native American people now call Thanksgiving Day. And the story was written and illustrated by indigenous authors who are descended from the first peoples on this continent. Author Tony Perry joins me now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You are one of three authors on this book. Can you tell us a little bit about your specific role in creating it? Absolutely. Um, actually, I'm going to explain kind of how this book came about because we each ended up having a role. So just to introduce myself, uh, I am a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation. I grew up in Oklahoma, but I live in England now. 
our co-authors and our illustrator come from a very broad range of native traditions, but we are all native creators. Danielle Greendeer is Mashpee Wampanoag, so one of the a citizen of the people whose uh, ancestors met the newcomers. And uh, Alexis Bunton is Alaska native, Unangan and Yupik. And our uh, illustrator, Gary Meaches Sr., is Anishinaabe. And so the story began actually through work that Alexis Bunton was doing. She had started an initiative or was participating in an initiative called Decolonizing Thanksgiving. And uh, a lot of this came from the Thanksgiving meal and the idea of Thanksgiving that we take for granted now, right? The story that I certainly grew up with was around pilgrims coming across, looking for a new life, meeting a few friendly Indians who helped them out. They ended up having a feast and everyone was happy. And that's the story that we had. And so Alexis has done a lot of work trying to unpick some of that story pointing out, for example, that it's a myth that came out after the Civil War by a publisher named Sarah Josepha Hale, who had persuaded Abraham Lincoln to have a day of thanks. That's where the idea that so many Americans have of Thanksgiving was really born. And what jumped out to me is that there is so much hard work done by people like Alexis, as well as Danielle and many others, to try to almost reteach this holiday, right? To say, look, here's what really happened. What do you think about it? And Kapanamak takes this at a different approach. Instead of trying to unteach and reteach a story, it's about creating a new story. So if the story that so many Americans know is itself a story, why couldn't we create a new story that creates a new default narrative? And that's what we set out to do. So Alexis and I worked together trying to think about what this could look like. You know, we talked about it with Danielle and she said, right, well, I'd love to work with you. Let's do it. So the three of us started working on the text. Danielle knew Gary Meaches Sr. And so all of this came through about a collaboration and a common vision of creating a new narrative, a more inclusive story. But it came through having that common vision and everyone bringing their own perspectives to this, again, with Native peoples at the heart, to make this possible. And as a result, we have Kapanamak. And why is it so important to have Indigenous people themselves telling these kinds of stories? Ultimately, because this story is about Indigenous peoples. It's about the first peoples that were here, and their voices have not been really heard. And it's important to note the role of Native peoples, because again, they were there. They were the ones that were, frankly, the center of this story, really. And also what happened afterwards. There's a story of frankly, genocide and of oppression of Native peoples, whether it's massacres that happened to the Wampanoag people, King Philip's War that happened about 70 years after, where the descendants of the pilgrims returned their thanks for having that settlement there by massacring Wampanoag peoples. Then you go further on, you've got the removal of Native peoples from their lands as European Americans started to want more space. So my ancestors were among those who were removed from their homeland as more and more settlers occupied our lands. Going back to the Wampanoag people, just in the last administration, the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe were fighting for their very recognition when a president decided to undo a decision that recognized them. And so this went to the highest levels. Thankfully, they have that recognition. These fights to recognize that we were the first peoples on the continent continue our fight for our identity. And I think it's important to emphasize that we were there, we have survived, and are still here and are thriving. So many of us spend time with young children over Thanksgiving. As we talk to young, especially non-Native kids, about Thanksgiving, how can we be honest about the genocide of Indigenous people and colonization in an age-appropriate way? That is a very good question, and, and it's hard. I would say, as you say, age-appropriate, I think, is the key part to this. So in the very beginning of it, for the earliest readers, I think it's important to note about the Native peoples that were there in this story. And also doing more to think about, well, who are Native peoples where you live now? On what land do you live, right? Who were the original 
occupants of that land. So I think that's a starting point of it and learning more about who those people are and maybe some of their traditions. So I think that's probably the first entry point to it. For older children, I think that the conversations do become different. They become deeper. That is where you start getting into the conversations around colonialism, decolonialism, about what we can do about it, recognition, and also inclusivity and respect that America certainly today is a far more diverse country than it was, say, 30 years ago as I was going through school. I think it's important to recognize that, and by recognizing that there are many American stories we as Native Americans are certainly one and play an important one, but it's right there in the fabric with African Americans, Asian Americans, and others who have come and settled, and some of the struggles and triumphs that they have had. So the story is told through the perspective of Corn, who is called Weachaman. Why did you decide to have Corn narrate the story? Well, there's a couple of reasons for this. Number one is that corn plays a vital role in the culture of many native peoples. That is in the United States, going into Mexico, Central and South America. Corn, in fact, was a plant that was created by native peoples. Native peoples had actually created what we know as corn today out of blades of grass which is a rich story in and of its own right, and plays a central role in the heart of cultures of Native peoples, many Native peoples today. Beans and squash grow very closely with corn. Native peoples call them the three sisters. Native peoples are quite diverse. We're not a monolithic group, so some Native peoples will have three sisters, others may have four and some five, but corn, beans, and squash is a pretty universal tradition. And the three sisters are somewhat universal because of the ecology of how those plants grow together. Is that right? That's right. That's exactly right. Corn grows first in native traditions. Corn will grow first. It provides structure. And then the beans end up wrapping around the corn. But beans also feeds corn because corn takes nitrates from the soil and beans actually add it in. And then squash, the third sister, will grow on the outer sides and keep other plants from taking up space and that sort of thing. So it's their own harmony. So that was important for us. Number two, we also felt that by telling the story through corn, but also other plants and animals, as opposed through just another retelling, well, but maybe from a native point of view, we felt like this would spark more thought and more discussion rather than just a story from, quote, the other side, which unfortunately is how it would be perceived if we just read it as, well, here's what happened with Wampanoag people and through their eyes and so on. So instead of pitting one against another, we thought, well, let's, let's decenter this a little bit and provide what is really a more universal story because we all depend on the ecology, on the world around us. And it shapes what options that we have and how we live our lives. So we felt like this would be a more inclusive way of telling the story, helps people think broader than even just Thanksgiving itself, to think about how we live in the world today, and as well as being able to give a new perspective to Thanksgiving and hopefully give room for thought. What advice do you have for how we can celebrate Thanksgiving in a way that respects and honors Indigenous peoples? That's a good question. And I think uh, the first part of it is to use the holiday as a way to think about the Native peoples where families are living, right? So if a family's having Thanksgiving, it's an opportunity to, to ask those questions around, well, whose land was this originally? Who are the Native peoples that live and, or lived in this land? And trying to understand a bit more about them, about their cultures and traditions, and what's happened to them today and happening to them today. The book includes back matter that describes where the Wampanoag people are in the United States, also their storytelling traditions. It offers activities, so trying a Wampanoag tradition of giving thanks or a spirit plate. So basically leaving behind a meal outside, you know, and, and giving thanks to the world. And also a recipe uh, to try nasamp, which is a traditional Wampanoag dish as well. So there's a bit of activity and, and learning as well that tries to set the scene for the book and where it fits in the wider world. I think it's also important to consider the role of Native peoples, not just on Thanksgiving, but 
across the year because of the role that they played in the American story, both past and present, and learn more about some of the challenges that they're facing and also their triumphs. So looking at you know Native representation and maybe buying books or watching films that involve Native characters that center their stories. So those are different things that you can do. Tony Perry is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation and one of the authors of Kipunamuk, Weachaman's Thanksgiving Story. Thank you so much, Tony. Thank you. Our studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, are on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded Pawtucket and Massachusetts First Nations land, with Wampanoag traditional lands just south of here around Cape Cod. By the way, Nassant, the traditional Wampanoag dish isn't hard to make. You boil cornmeal, berries, nuts, or seeds in water for a few minutes, then let it simmer until the water is absorbed. Drizzle some maple syrup on top for a sweet finish. For the complete recipe and more, check out our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, a most unusual stuffing for your Thanksgiving table, made with oysters. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. In this giving season, please consider making a donation to Living on Earth. Your gift will help us continue to produce high-quality journalism that educates and inspires you to be fully informed about climate change and environmental issues. So thank you for your support. It's the Living on Earth Thanksgiving special. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanksgiving stuffing is one of the most adaptable parts of the meal, whether you add in some Portuguese sausage or sprinkle in some fresh cranberries. And how about stuffing made with the food that comes in a rock? Oysters can be sustainable both for local economies and ecosystems since their reefs protect coastal areas. They're also delicious, depending on your opinion, of course, and that makes them one of celebrity chef Barton Seaver's most prized ingredients. We called him up in his kitchen near the harbor of South Freeport, Maine, to hear the case for why oysters should regain a place at the Thanksgiving table. Oysters were one of the foundational foods of this country, and long before the white man set foot on this continent, oysters were serving and sustaining native populations for eons. And it, hey, are you hungry? Cool. Wait for low tide. There's <laughs> a pretty good menu out there. And in the first years of this country, and really through the early 1900s, oysters played a significant part of our diet. In New York City, around the turn of the 20th century, New Yorkers were eating about seven pounds of oysters per person per year. But through decimation of local oyster populations in the wild throughout the United States and our coastlines, we lost access to oysters, as well as railroads created access to beef and revolutions in agriculture made animal products cheaper, more accessible, more available. And sort of we lost our way as a seafaring nation as we turned towards a Another ocean that rippled with amber waves of grain instead of, uh, instead of the tempestuous waves of the Atlantic. Now, Barton, I know you're a huge fan of oysters, but not just for their taste. Tell me why you think they're so important ecologically. Oysters, amongst other shellfish, are you know, what was known as a keystone species. They're fundamental to the health of the ecosystems in which they are prevalent. They provide water quality. They provide habitat for countless other species. They are the bedrock upon which ecosystems' health and resiliency relies. And in the absence of wild oysters, because we've decimated them through overfishing, through disease, etc., habitat loss, oyster farming has stepped into the role of providing those ecosystem services, those vital services And it was really oyster farming, clams and mussels, scallop farming as well, that really turned my attention as a chef away from sort of the guilty narrative of sustainability being, hey, how can we reduce the negative impacts we're having, to thinking about oysters as regenerative, 
as our opportunity to improve ecosystems through our diet to the point where oysters, clams, mussels are, are the only foods that I recommend outright overconsumption of. Because every oyster you eat encourages an oyster farmer, a small businessman or woman, to plant many more to augment and expand upon those ecosystem services provided by them. And uh, in that way, I think it's our patriotic duty to eat as many farm-raised shellfish as we can. In fact, you know, as the storms pick up with climate disruption, oyster reefs are a great way to slow down uh, the storm surge, huh? Absolutely. We've seen this with Katrina. We saw this with Superstorm Sandy, that these vulnerable civic centers are made more vulnerable by the lack of those natural oyster reefs that naturally stopped those storm surges. And there's some really fascinating work going on around rebuilding reefs through commerce, which, hey, I mean, environmentalism and social good on the half shell with a splash of Texas peat and a six pack of beer over there chilling. Woo! I mean, <laughs> hey, you know, that's the kind of story that we need. And that's the kind of civic participation that is not a hard sell. Why is it important to have oysters in local communities? What is it about oyster farming that is so sustainable for localities? Well, we are an agrarian nation. We really get the patterned rows of corn leading the eye off in undulating hills towards autumn splendor setting sun, the, the white farmhouse picket fence, red barn color fading. I mean, hot damn, you know, this is America, the very thread by which our fabric is woven. But we look out upon the water and sort of gaze wistfully at the wine-dark sea and, and think as though a fishery or a fish farm happens somewhere other, somewhere else. And I think it's so important that when we think about aquaculture, when we think about fisheries, yeah, we stand on that dock, but we, we turn around and we look at the quality of public education and the, the modest home standing proudly on the hillside leading to the sea. We, we look at the opportunity for a daughter to follow in five generations of bootsteps to take helm of that boat and live and thrive in her community. And that is what oyster farming represents in that truly American story, we see ourselves reflected and we see our own values delivered to us on the half shell. Right here in my village, there's a young woman named Emily, Emily's Oysters. She grew up here and she went to school out in Puget Sound and she was looking for something to do. And, you know, a classic case of the brain drain of small rural communities. But oyster farming caught her heart. You know, it, it brought her back to her place. And now she's farming 50, 60, 70,000 oysters out in the waters that I can see from my house pretty much. And she's selling at local farmer's markets. And like that to me is the, the quintessential story of success and of human sustainability acting in concert with our ecosystems. I mean, hey, that we can put that narrative so concisely on our Thanksgiving table, celebrating not only our past, but evangelizing and enabling the next generation of ocean stewards all through one delicious bite at a time, oh, makes you feel good. Indeed. You have some delicious recipes, Barton, on your website. There's, oh, the oyster risotto, the broiled oysters Rockefeller, and I believe you're going to show us how to make an oyster stuffing, being that we're close to Thanksgiving, huh? Yeah. Now, I must say, I never knew the stuffing on my Thanksgiving table could feature shellfish. Right. You know, and, and it's one of those dishes that I really like about oysters. Oysters can be, I wouldn't say polarizing, but uh, intimidating. I mean, it is the only food, Steve, that we eat regularly that comes to us inside of a rock. <laughs> yeah. How do you open the thing? You gave me a lesson on how to do this a few years back. But the next time I tried it, I have to say I wasn't terribly successful. I mean, yeah, this, this, this animal's inside of a rock. Right. And then take this culinary advice on how to open it. Well, Steve, grasp the oyster in the left hand, take a pointy knife, and shove it towards your hand with full force. Yeah. You know I mean? It's like, it's, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's no. kind of against all of our intuition and best learning. This food comes, comes inside of a rock and we have to point a knife towards our hand to get it. However, it becomes this meditative skill. And, and yes, it takes practice, it takes time, but it is also this very sort of zen 
thing. And I've, I've shucked probably over a hundred thousand oysters in my life. You know, I'm, I'm well over Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, you know, threshold there for expertise, but there's something so beautiful about that connectivity. And when we do open it, you protect yourself either with a glove or with towels, et cetera. And when you pop that open, you are seeing there in front of you this, this still living creature that offers us this very visceral sensory opportunity to experience the unseemly circus of life aquatic that is the microscopic ocean from which it eats. I mean, it's just this, wow, hey, yeah, it's, it's worth the effort, you know, ultimately. But the Thanksgiving stuffing is something that I love because it doesn't require us to sort of put forth this pristine oyster. I mean, hey, your oysters are going to get cooked down with butter and celery, sage, onion, chunks of brioche or, uh, you know, whole wheat bread all simmered down together in a chicken broth or water and seasoned with the liqueur of the oyster, that salt fragrant glory coming through. Shove that under your turkey, roast it off. The bottom of it gets a little bit crisp. The oysters add that that really just floral aroma to the turkey. It's, I mean, hey, do I have your attention yet? I can almost smell it, as a matter of fact, even as you describe it. We're going to post on the Living on Earth website, that's LOE.org, uh, some video of Barton preparing his, his oyster stuffing. So now is the moment, uh, Barton, where we, uh, we'd love to see you do that. All right, well, it's not complicated. You start off with butter because, well, because butter. And stuffing is really one of the easiest things. And what I, what I love so much about it is that scent of sage, which is so autumnal and just sort of celebratory in its, in its nature and flavor and aroma to me. And uh, so I always look forward to the foods and the dishes that uh, incorporate that. And, and none, I think, more viscerally to the American experience than stuffing. Very simple recipe of just sauteing or base aromatics. I've got couple stalks of celery and onion that I've diced up, uh, sauteing that in butter. And I'm just going to keep that on until it wilts, which will be a few minutes here. And then I've got some of Emily's oysters who, who stopped by this morning at the house on her way to the market up in Bath where you can find her. But I've got the, the liquor and the oysters perfectly shucked in there. All that flavor, that salt fragrant glory of the, of the liquor. Let's see what else I got. Some brioche breadcrumbs that I just cut into pieces, toasted them off in the toaster oven until they were nice and crunchy. So, mm -hmm. and here you go. Here come the sounds of the season. You've got uh, the butter starting to waft up into the room. I mean, this is, uh, this is at least what I live for. So not too hot there, just sort of lightly sauteing it, huh? Yeah, you don't want to add color to it necessarily. You don't want to change the flavor of the onion, the celery, just so much as, as wilt it, integrate it into the dish. So as I was talking about the sage, as it begins to simmer in that butter, woo, mm. I guarantee my wife is going to walk down in T-minus three minutes here at least and uh, wonder what's going on. <laughs> so oyster liqueur couple of oysters. Ooh. One for me. Mm. And there you go. Uh. You're done. You know, you don't need to season it with anything more than the sage. We've already got the, uh, you got all of the, the saltiness, the brininess of those oysters to sort of fill that out. Just turn the heat off and as the continuation heat in the bread and the in the celery begins to cook, you see the the mantle, those lips of the oysters begin to curl. And I mean, hey, Steve, this is gorgeous. This is wonderful, and this is my lunch today. So thanks for the opportunity to make it for you. You know, the thing that I love most about cooking is that to feed someone is an act of love. It is an act of kindness, and that's why I love Thanksgiving so much as a holiday. Is it begs us to consider our neighbors. And uh, that plays into sustainability narrative too, which is while the idea of the concept of sustainability might be very complicated, the action of it is very simple. And that is simply of being a good neighbor. When we look out for each other, we look out for the whole. And through food, we do that so intimately and with such love and deliciousness.
Barton Seaver's latest book is The Joy of Seafood, the all-purpose seafood cookbook with almost a thousand recipes. Thanks, Barton. Thanks for taking the time with us today. Always a pleasure. I look forward to feeding you again in our kitchen sometime soon. To see Barton cooking up his oyster stuffing, go to the Living on Earth webpage, LOE.org. Cousins of the centerpiece on many Thanksgiving tables do more than just gobble. Turkeys squawk, chirp when they're poults or chicks, and even softly purr to express contentment in a flock. And of course, there's the gobble itself. Toms use it to attract hens and fend off rivals. The National Wild Turkey Federation lists a dozen types of turkey calls. Hunters hone the skill of turkey calling to bring their quarries into range to become Thanksgiving dinner. These calls come from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Josh Kroom, Swayam Gagneja, Maddie Hibbs, Mozzie Ingram, Mark Kausch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Sarah Mahaney, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandelitis, Jake Rigo, L. Wilson, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. And you can write to us at comments at LOE.org. I'm Jenny Doring. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening, and let's enjoy this holiday season. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. <laughs>